I'm Tim Baker, host of the Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Michelle Carnahan, the president of 30 Madison. Michelle is a veteran healthcare executive and continues to be a champion for women in business. Michelle spent over 25 years with Eli Lilly, which is the first company she ever worked for after graduating college. During her illustrious career there, Michelle led the musculoskeletal and diabetes product lines before launching their international business unit in 2017. After two brief stints in leadership positions at other pharmaceutical manufacturers, Michelle joins the leadership team of 30 Madison, which is an organization whose mission is to bring specialized care and treatment to everyone. Currently, they operate four unique brands, Keeps, Cove, Evens, and Picnic, which are focused on treating hair loss, migraines, GI issues, and allergies, respectively. 30 Madison just reached unicorn status with their Series C raise of $140 million at a valuation of over a billion dollars, led by HealthQuest Capital. Michelle, welcome. We're, we're so excited to have you on the Pulse podcast. Tim, I am. Uh, I'm super excited to be here this afternoon. So thanks for having me. Awesome. One of the things we like to ask our guests when they first come on is, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, it's funny, I, my son just graduated high school and starting college. So all those things about what do you want to be and how do you get there? And I tease him because my son wanted to be, he wanted to be the omelet guy at the restaurant. Like that's what he wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be so many different things. So I remember when I was, when I was young, I really thought I wanted to be a doctor or a nurse. I was really into healthcare. And it wasn't until I had, until I figured out I had a little bit of a, of a blood issue that that came crashing down. And then I spent a a while thinking I wanted to teach economics at the college level. And then that ended up being like an awfully long time in school. And here I end up, you know, Tim, one of the questions that I often get is if I weren't doing this, what would I be doing? And, you know, one of two things, interior design or writing a book. So, you know, I'm a little bit all over the place with these things. So uh, just out of curiosity, what did you tell your son when he wanted to be the omelet maker? You know what? We always encouraged him to kind of be and do anything he wanted to be and do. So we thought we thought it was great he wanted to be the omelet maker. And he's turned out to be really a very good breakfast chef. Um, <laughs> he has since, <laughs> since about the time he was 12, he has taken care of breakfast in our house on Sunday mornings, typically. So, you know, we encouraged that. I think he was going to be a professional baseball player for a while, a submariner for a while. But um, I'm happy to report he's going to go to Duke and is studying computer science and applied math. So we'll see. But he can always fall back on his cooking skills because, again, his first kind of I want to be was I want to be that guy who makes the omelets. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so why don't we turn into sort of the more professional conversation? And I think the first question, it's almost obvious. It's you spend 26 years at a single company, which yeah. is remarkable. Can you talk about what made you stay for 26 years? Gosh, just that, that always, I'm so glad you led with that, Tim, because it really, like, really shows my dinosaurishness. But anyway, so, <laughs> so let, let's get started. You know, I, I started with Lily at 21, right out of undergrad. And I was kind of in love with a few things about it. The first was, you know, I was a Hoosier by birth. And so there was always this thing about going to work for the Lilies, you know, from many years ago when it was a family health company. And I also had, I was also really interested in healthcare. And what I got at Lily was really my ability to take my love of science and my love of helping 
and just get to grow in so many different ways. So the thing that kept me there as long as I stayed there was I got to do just about everything. I was in sales. I was in marketing. I was in HR. I was in finance. I was in Six Sigma. I was in strategy. And then, you know, I did what all old pharma executives do. I ran business units. Um, And in running business units, because they span cross-functionally and because I worked in a lot of condition areas, I just never got bored. And so, you know, I think I felt like I could always grow. And it had a it had a company culture that fit me too. And and I was I was comfortable there. You know, I'll I'll say too for some of your listeners who may be starting careers, it had to do with a dual career for me too. Both my husband and I decided when we married that we both wanted to work. And, you know, many times the moving in and out of cities didn't work well. And so it just kind of fit. But it was all those things that fit. And made me feel comfortable that actually really made me leave too. And so I, I was in an assignment working on a joint venture with Baron Ingelheim, which is a German company. I always say you can't get to be a more American company than Eli Lilly and company, like plopped down right in the middle of a cornfield in Indiana. And so this German company, family owned, totally different than Lilly. And one of the things I started to learn as I worked there, I had success. But success was more difficult. You know, there were so many places after I'd worked at Lily for 15 plus years, you know, I knew the person, I knew where to go ask the questions. Some people, I think, frankly, did things with me because they trusted me. You know, I, I got things I needed. And I really noticed how much my time working at BI, a different company and a different culture, really caused me to grow. And so for the first time, about 21 years into my time at Lily, I talked to a headhunter, which I had never talked to a search firm. I had never done an interview. I know the young people in your audience are like having a stroke right now. Do as I do as I say, not as I do what I'll say <laughs> in a minute. Um, but I just started thinking like, I'm not getting any younger. And if I want to, I always said that what made me who I am is like my love of learning. And if I was going to keep doing that, I needed to do something different. And so kind of there in started my kind of hunt for what can I go do from Lily. And then actually I went to Santa Fe, which turned out to be a really fantastic choice because it's a French company, very different than Lily. The culture is very different than Lily. So Santa Fe was kind of a good landing ground for some comfort. So it had therapeutic pharmaceuticals, which I knew with a culture that was very different from me starting over. And it was a good place for me to go and be challenged And then really think about this career jump I made about a year ago, right as the pandemic started, which is to really kind of work in startups and and see what that was like. And I think I never would have, the Lily to startup jump was too big of a one to me. I almost think I needed one, maybe it's like a a palate cleanser, something between between the two roles, but but that has, has led me here to the startup world. That's helpful context. And that was going to be my next question, which it sounds like you've covered sort of why you wanted to pivot. You became this ultra powerful figure in pharma and then you decided to leave, uh, which is surprising. But so now you've decided to leave. Why did you choose health tech specifically and startups? What was it about that culture that attracted you so much? Okay, let me first say that I've never been called an ultra powerful figure in anything. And so I ha- like I said, I have an 18-year-old son and he's not all that impressed with me ever. So I'll, I'll be playing this over for him, Tim. So don't cut the ultra-powerful figure out of this podcast because that's probably the first and last time. 
Look, you know, for, for me, the, the switch was a couple of things. I mean, the switch had to do with, A, I wanted to do something to grow myself in a different way. B, I found a mentor who encouraged me to do it. So I didn't feel like I was jumping alone. But C, and we'll get to this a little bit as we talk about health tech as we move along here. I was really interested in health tech and things out of therapeutics. Why? I love therapeutics. I love drug development. I love drug marketing. I mean, it's in my bones now. But what I talk about having this moment, and we, we all will have them over the course of our lifetime. And I was sitting in an audience where we had a CEO by the name of Randy Tobias at Lilly. And I was sitting in the audience and he held up um, a bottle of pills and said, all of these pills are is unfulfilled potential until they reach a patient. And the last few years of my career, I had worked in diabetes, where I think we can all talk about kind of the insulin issues and and how that gets to patients. And I just thought to myself, like, what a great pivot. And as somebody who always said, I want to help patients, what a great place to go do it, where you're looking at how do we get more access and affordability and transparency in the system? Because of whether it's a medicine or a diagnostic or an appointment to your doctor's office, none of it matters unless it gets to a person. And there are just too many people in this country who still don't have the opportunity that they need in healthcare. And so I think that more than anything drove the pivot. I think a lot of us are going to have to work together to make healthcare more affordable and accessible. But I think with technology and with a good focus on on humans first, I, I think we can get there. That makes a lot of sense. And the mission statement, in fact, of 30 Medicine, I think, is the human-first healthcare company bringing specialized care and treatment to everyone. So what you just described essentially sort of fits that mission almost to a T. So when you think about that, what does being human-first really mean? You know, I think it, we, particularly me, overuse words a lot. You'll see that I'll use a lot of them in this podcast. I talk a lot. But I love people who use words in a way that they really matter. It's not my strength. But human first means everything. Because I think so often in healthcare, and I learned this quite frankly, working with people with diabetes and working with people like Kelly Close, who runs Close Concerns, working with people, people are more than their conditions. Nobody wants to be known as their condition. Nobody wants to be known as the diabetic or the high blood pressure sufferer, patients are humans first. And I think so often we forget that because people become statistics on a number or conditions on a number or you know a particular therapeutic patient on a piece of paper. And so human first is one of those things at 30 Madison. We chose that word very intentionally. And in a world of overused words, It's the most important one you'll hear from us because while healthcare is an incredibly important part of what we do, technology is incredibly important. Humans are at the center of all we do. And so many humans, when you're dealing with healthcare and you're dealing with the condition for Alzheimer's, it's not just that patient, it's the caretaker, right? It's not just that one person. And so when we talk about human-centered healthcare, human-centered approach. I think it means everything. I think it is one of the differentiators in how we're trying to build a business here at 30 Madison. 
And to give everyone context a little bit on 30 Madison, you guys have four brands, I think, as I've already described, which is Keeps, Cove, Evens, and Picnic. Um, so how much time does the team spend coming up with fun one-word names for these businesses? <laughs> you know what? So our, our office, and I'm sitting here in our office today in New York, our office, our conference rooms are all named by kind of failed names. And some of them scare me a little bit because like one of them's Mr. Cool and one of them's Samson. So I think whatever time oh God. we do spend there. <laughs> oh God. So, yeah, so so whatever time we do spend there, I think having, you know, reading the leftover names on our office walls, whatever time we do spend there is is important and is successful. So yeah, I mean, um, the naming is a piece of it. Look, the naming is a little bit. It's probably, you know, it's one of the smaller pieces of the work we do, obviously, if you ask that question in jest. But it is important because it helps people connect with their healthcare condition in a way that is human first, right? In a way that isn't, oh, this is the, you know, this is the diabetes hotline. This is the cardiovascular. It does make them think about their conditions differently. So there is a little bit of planning to it, albeit I think we, uh, I think we get a lot of wrong names before we get the right ones. I'm sure. So what is the benefit of having the structure that you guys have, which is having 30 Madison as the overarching parent organization, and then having the individual brands beneath that? Absolutely. And I think, Tim, you knew you wouldn't get through this podcast without me kind of talking about the positives of 30 Madison and, and what makes us work. Look, I think it's essential to know three things about 30 Madison before I answer that question. The first is that our entire healthcare model is built off a therapeutic care model. And the therapeutic care model is really based on the journey of a chronic condition patient. No matter what your chronic condition, whether it's hair loss or migraine or gastrointestinal, your journeys are the same. And in your journeys as a patient, you experience different things, but you go through kind of the same, shall we say, silos. And our care model chooses to address specialized telemedicine up front. So how do we get specialist level care in these chronic conditions? So that's kind of the first piece of our care model. The second is personalized treatment. How do we take those, those same people who have come to us and have trusted us to give them specialized care to diagnose? How do we get them then the personalized treatment? And then final, the final piece of our care model is how do we do ongoing condition management to help that individual through what is a chronic care journey. So that's the first thing that I think is important to know about 30 Madison. We're based off a care model. The second thing to know is that care model is wrapped in a patient experience that puts the chronic care patient at the center of all we do. So we're not about urgent care. We're not about primary care. We are about chronic care and chronic conditions. And all of that is really underscored by a platform of technology and services that make the care model work. And so the reason 30 Madison is important is because we don't want to have single source solutions to everything. Ultimately, we want to be, and our goal, if you, you know, to, if you're to come read our wall with our vision on it, is to be the premier healthcare company not the premier digital company, but the premier healthcare company to treat patients with chronic conditions, right? And so I think as you think about the brands are important, Evans, Keeps, Co, Picnic, they're important because they let us get to know 
each and every condition patient journey very intimately and let us react to that. But the company is important because it really builds the infrastructure and the care model and the reach to be able to be not just a point solution, but a multi-point solution. You know, as you think about chronic care patients, I think something like six in 10 Americans suffer from a chronic condition and four in 10 of those suffer from two. And so, you know, what we're really trying to do is to change the way chronic conditions are treated. The brands are important because it gives us focus in conditions. The company is important because, you know, of the $3 trillion roughly that are spent, you know, well over 80% of that is on chronic conditions. And the company is really important helping us to fulfill that need. You also made an interesting choice, which is to not go through the traditional reimbursement model of, of insurance and instead focus on cash pay customers. So why did you guys make this choice? And uh, do you think that that at all limits the acuity of the patients that you can treat? So I think what I'd like to say about that is it was an initial choice for us. And there's a reason why we made it as an initial choice. We have a theory, right, that healthcare can be more accessible more affordable, and more transparent for people, right? We really wanted to know and understand humans and what they were up against kind of in their healthcare journeys in regard to chronic conditions. And so no better way to do that than to really go direct to consumer out of the gate. You know, the other piece around that is there was a piece of direct to consumer too, that just there were just less barriers to entry, right? Than, than other ways that we could have gone in. So we went there and we also were really kind of trying to prove out some concepts, right? And to really prove out how consumer focus can make a difference in healthcare delivery. And we'll talk in a little bit about some of the results we've seen in some of our businesses. That was our choice to go in. We are now beginning to talk to payers and employers about what's the role and what's the model that 30 Madison really can come in and play in, in, in the healthcare system as it exists today. Look, we make no secret about it at 30 Madison that we really have the goal of making care more accessible, more affordable, and more transparent. You know, one of the things I really love about 30 Madison, though, is it, it is about a bunch of people who have pretty low egos for what they do. And so I think there is an understanding that there is a healthcare system in this country, and we want to be able to improve that system and work within that system. And so I think you'll see us start to work with employers and payers, whether it's fee-for-service, per-member-per-month type situations, or really kind of looking at how do we share value that we bring back. One of the tenets of our business model is we actually profit where we provide value. So we're not a service ad we are really trying to say how within the system is what we do changing the outcome for patients as well as changing the spending efficiency. And then how do we make that happen more and more throughout the healthcare system? So we started as B2C. I think B2B to C is not far away. Before we get into some of the next steps for 30 Madison, I'd love to give our listeners just a little bit of context into how you heard about the organization and to give them a little bit more insight into your personal experience joining 30 Madison. So I'd love to start with how you initially heard about 30 Madison and what was your impression of the company before you joined in July 2020? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, frankly, I had very little impression, to be honest. I didn't know them. 
I had started kind of having conversations with a mentor of mine, Darren Carroll, who'd gone to Polaris Partners to work in venture capital. And he introduced me to Amy Schulman. And, you know, Amy, she probably does fit your description of an ultra powerful figure in pharma from her days there. And she's since gone to venture capital. And so we just started talking about what I was looking for as I was wanting to kind of get out into the startup world or the high growth world. And I had done some stuff in health tech, both at Sanofi and at Lilly. So at Sanofi, I was on the board of directors of Onduo, which was our joint venture with Verily for patients with diabetes. At Lilly, I had worked in the connected care division in our diabetes world and kind of helped to kick some of that off the ground in Boston. And so it was Amy who actually um, kind of put us together and said, you should have a conversation. And it was a really interesting conversation because at first I said, hmm, you know, I don't know. They're they're very consumer focused, maybe too consumer focused. I'm a therapeutics person, blah, 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 blah. And uh, Stephen Dimitri and I had our first conversation. And really, I think, which is important for anybody who's out there thinking about what do they want to do and where do they want to work out? We hit it off. We had a, a lot of fun getting to know one another. And frankly, we pretty soon identified that there were some things that I brought to the equation and some things they brought to the equation. And if we brought them together, it actually could could have real benefit for all of us. But what stood out to me when I started digging underneath 30 was the pieces that we've already talked about. Chronic conditions, they're tough. They're a huge cost, but it's really hard to unlock them. And I love that they wanted to take on that versus some of the easier routes. And so I thought that's a really interesting part of the company. I also thought the company had a really interesting understanding of humans and consumers and wanting to bring people into their healthcare, which I thought was was super neat. And so, you know, Steve Dimitri and I worked together, like you said, from July of 2020 through most of 2020 on strategy and where do we see the company going? And I got involved in a few things operationally. And Stephen Dimitri met at NYU when they were there 10, 12 years ago, started a company together right out of NYU, and then started this company together as their second company. And so we are a bit of an odd couple, shall we say, in that, you know, I, I have a son graduating high school and, you know, they're, they are not in that phase of their life. But frankly, they said, we'd like you to come in and, and as they put it, which I thought was really interesting, be the third leg in our stool, which, you know, I said to them, one of them is married, one of them is not. I told the Dimitri, who is not married, if he ever does a proposal, I'm going to help him with it because that's the worst proposal ever, be the third leg of our stool. But it's really, you know, I had to go against everything that was a part of me from all those things in the corporate world, like three people will never work. Michelle, you need to be the boss if you're going to someplace. Like, why are you going to go and not, you know, like, it'll never work like that. I had to get over a lot of like all those voices I heard in my head from the traditional way that business had been done. But getting over that, I came in and took the president role in January. We did a big fundraise uh, in the first, second quarter of this year. And I think we're off to the races on some exciting stuff now. But that's, uh, that's how we met. And that's a little bit of our story there. That's fascinating. And you've alluded to this a little bit, but it, it may not from the outside perspective have seemed like the most natural mesh. Here's two men who are pretty new to the healthcare industry who met in New York City. And you're a woman, you're an industry veteran, and you're from the Midwest. So there might have been concern about sort of how that mesh would work. 
And it seems like it was great from the start. Is that a fair characterization? I think it really was great from the start, but but let me tell you why I think that is. Look, I think that I am somebody who brings to work. I, I am who I am. And so I'm, I'm a pretty open book. I, I always say a lot of people say they don't like hierarchy until they're at the top of the hierarchy and suddenly they like hierarchy. Like I really don't like hierarchy. And then what Stephen Dimitri bring is, you know, for two, you know, because because I can remember being that young, but for two people who, you know, they're founders, they're highly successful, but they always know that they can learn more. And that's hard for people, I think. I think people don't always recognize they can learn more. So I think, you know, in some ways it was the characteristic of me just kind of really wanting to be a part of something big and and wanting to come in and play whatever role I could in it. And it was them knowing that, hey, this is where this might help. This is how we get to this, this bigger spot. I think it was that that made it work. But we spent a lot of time because we met during the height of the pandemic, right? I think we met in May of 2020. We met in the height of the pandemic. And frankly, we spent a lot of time in our first six months together, and, and this is a little pointer I'll give to everybody, you know, we spent time getting to know one another. And once you get to know one another, I had someone tell me when I was first a manager, way back in the dark ages, I had someone tell me like, have your team over to your house for dinner. No way anybody can hate you once they come to your house for dinner. And I think, I think that's a little simplified as feedback, but I think the feedback of get to know people, take time to know people. And it was particularly hard during the pandemic. I mean, we would have meetings and, you know, we might spend the first 20 minutes of them telling stories or learning things about one another, but it's made this whole transition back into the office and a big fundraise and big changes in the company. It's made it so easy because we built a pretty fast trust and trust is the basis to a ton of business success. There's just no question about that. So it sounds like from a personal perspective, there was a jive, there was that click. Talking a little bit more, and I know you mentioned that really exciting and and massive $140 million Series C raise, but I'd love to put some context on before the raise, sort of what were the plans when you first joined? And at what point did you determine, hey, now's the best time for us to start engaging more of that growth stage venture firms to really accelerate some of the growth? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that as we thought about when's the right time, and I think this is kind of common sense for everyone, as we were going through 2020, you know, we tripled our revenue last year, tripled our revenue, got to over kind of a hundred million dollar run rate. And so part of what says go forward is, you know, I always tease Stephen Dimitri, like I think a little bit keeps and cove were really kind of proof points in a whole big healthcare transformation, right? And so I think, you know, the first thing is you just have to see some business success. You have to know, as I like to say, there's a there there. And so I think as we thought about where we were going, we thought about, okay, we have a model that works. We have a good underlying strategy for our model. And then I think it's that question of, okay, so how do you get there in this market? And I think the thing that really moved it, look, I say that the pandemic probably moved ahead healthcare, technology, and digital health 
seven to 10 years. I mean, I think people who were never going to have an appointment via the web now want their via their computer now want to have their appointment via their computer, right? So I think it moved us forward in a way that, you know, frankly, when you've been in healthcare as long as I have, you know, I remember when Hillary Care was going to transform the whole thing, you know, the whole model was going to change. And then the model iterated a little bit. You know, I think what the pandemic proved to all of us is healthcare, healthcare can change and it will change. And so I think the third determinant, as you ask about, like, why did we do the raise and what was the timing? Well, it was the results. It was the strong underlying strategy. And then frankly, it was just the pace at which healthcare was moving. And, you know, if we want to be the premier healthcare company for chronic conditions, get with it. Because this healthcare machine that has kind of lugged along for so many years now is moving. And so those are the things that really got us there to those decisions. I think the strategy was there. I think what we were waiting for was the proof point and the results. And then the environment just, I think, gave us a real, gave us some real tailwind. Well, it seems like an incredibly exciting time for 30 Madison. And this raise is incredibly exciting. And I think as part of the raise, you announced that you're thinking of it expanding into uh, several new conditions potentially. So how do you think about expanding into new conditions? And what are some criteria your team thinks about when you select those conditions? I don't know. I mean, we have, you know, we have a list of bazillions of criteria and we run them through, you know, like a match. So all of that happens, but I like to keep things a little bit simpler. And I, I like to say we've got three principles for where we'll go. Principle number one is, we are about chronic conditions, low acuity to high acuity, because chronic conditions oftentimes just don't happen and sit in one acuity phase. They vacillate, they go back and forth, or they may start as low and go to high. So our first principle is we're going to be um, active participants in both in low to high acuity conditions across the board. That's principle number one. Principle number two is go where the need is, right? So, and the need kind of happens in two or three different areas, right? There is a need sometimes in terms of there just aren't enough specialists in a specific area. So let's understand where those are. The need sometimes is the volume of patients is just so darn high. The need sometimes is about the cost of care. And so, you know, knowing that we're going to go low to high acuity we then take a second principle and say, okay, let's look, let's look at the market, kind of where's there a need? And that's where we do some quantitative analysis. And then to me, the third piece is, is what I call the qualitative need that's a little bit harder. But where is the disconnect between what people are looking for in their healthcare experience and what they're getting? I think the average net promoter score for a healthcare experience in the United States today is nine. The NPS is a nine. That's zero, nine. The NPS of CO is 79. The NPS of folks who come through that system and who are a part of our care model is 79. So think about if you can move an average nine to a 79, what that does to healthcare. And so the third piece is that qualitative piece where we're really looking like, where is the journey broken for the patient and how does our model help to fix that? And we'll apply ourselves there. So yeah, there's a, there's a ton of things you look at and a ton of analysis that you do, but to me, it boils down to those three simple things. You've also taken somewhat of a unique strategy towards growth, choosing to do more of an organic approach, whereas maybe a comparator in the space, Row Health, is taking sort of more of that inorganic M&A approach. 
Can you talk about why it's important to grow these businesses internally and, and to solve these needs uh, as one organization? Well, so I, I'd say a couple things about your question. First, I think, you know, another place I look at, at our competitors are the Livongo and the Amadas of the world. And so I think the same thing applies to kind of mergers and acquisitions and, and how that works. But I always like to point that out. You know, one of the things I love about 30 Madison is that the consumer piece is really, really tight. But we care about not only the consumer piece, but longitudinal health outcomes and really being a healthcare company. And so I think it really ties us across that spectrum. Look, I think for us anyway, I wouldn't put M&A out of the picture forever. But I think for us, because so much of what we do is trying to do kind of two things. One, put the human at the center. But three, try to blend healthcare, technology, and consumerism in the right balance that we build something that is new and innovative. And I think we've done so much organically up until now because we want to really be able to scale all of this. So it's one thing to pull a bunch of different pieces together, but what's the underlying way that you're going to build all of this and scale it? So to us, it's been a very important part of learning the business, bringing the right balance of tech, healthcare, and consumerism to getting us to a place to scale. Again, I wouldn't take out M&A for us forever, but organically, we did it for our learnings and just to become a better healthcare company. Got it. And it seems like in healthcare, there, there are these two approaches emerging. One is sort of going after the holistic care model. We're going to be everything for everyone. And the other is the more functional approach, which is we're going to solve one problem at a time and sort of keep adding problems to the list. Yes. So how do you think 30 Madison fits into that picture now versus 10 years from now? You know, at 30 Madison, we see ourselves as taking the best of the consumer-centric approach to care because we think it's important. So the hymns, the her, the row approach as well as the best of the longitudinal care management approach of companies like Livongo and Amada. We see ourselves really blending those. So when you look at things like our net promoter score, we want it to be in the 80s. We want consumers connected to what we do. But we're excited to be remaking specialty care. And to remake specialty care, you have to have longitudinal health outcomes. And so when you look at something like our code for migraine, you know we see an 80% reduction in ER and urgent care visits a month after they're in the program. So we really see ourselves remaking that area of specialty care for more accessibility, better costs, more transparent to patients. And so, you know, frankly, I think we see it as kind of a blended approach. And we see that, frankly, as one of the things that makes us different. Got it. And I'd like to pivot a little bit and transition to talking more about your leadership style, because over the years, you've been a really vocal and prominent advocate for women in business and specifically women in healthcare business. So I, I know we've already talked about the fact that you joined largely concurrently with Amy Shulman, who joined the 30 Madison board as part of the Series B raise, I believe. Can you talk about how important it was to have her voice on the board and more generally how important it is to have a variety of perspectives on boards. 100%. Look, I very much live by none of us is smarter than all of us. I don't care how smart the one is. And so I think you have to get different voices. And I think Amy has made all the difference in the world. If you look at our board, Amy brings not only a woman's perspective, but a healthcare executive's perspective. And frankly, at this point, a seasoned investor. 
But you know, what makes our board, I think, unique is Jason Stouffer has been on our board for a while for Mavron, which is a consumer venture firm, frankly. And, you know, the things that I've learned from him and the time that he takes with me to talk about his learnings along the consumer pathway has really been fantastic. And then Randy Scott from HealthQuest just joined our board. They were our lead investors in Series C. And Randy's ability in building companies, frankly, from the ground up, but then also understanding the payer and the employer space has been invaluable. So it's the board makeup, the diversity of board in terms of gender and people of color, but also just skills and experiences and styles is even fantastic. So, you know, I think it's been a real benefit having Amy. It's been an even greater benefit having the combination of folks we've had. So when you and Amy joined, and what, if any, structural changes did you make uh, within 30 Madison to break down some of the barriers that you've talked about in terms of gender equity in the workforce? What are some changes you might think about encouraging others to make that you have made at 30 Madison? You know, I think I learned a lot of this, frankly, from my days at Lilly when we had a real focus on gender equity with Enrique Quinterno leading an organization, Dave Ricks leading the company. And, you know, I think that there are three things that are really important as you think about structure and other pieces. The first is that if you don't measure it, it doesn't get done. So you can't be afraid to measure it, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, if there's not some accountability around that measurement, it doesn't get done. And so you have to work in the right way to hold folks accountable to a commitment to diversity. And then the third piece I talk about, and boy, it's one of the things that I've loved about seeing at the pandemic is people bring different styles. They bring different ways of wanting to work. And you have to be open to that as an organization, right? And that's not just women. And I think this has become super important because it's not just women. It's everybody who wants some more flexibility. And talk about flexibility in the workforce with the exception of a few places. And kind of we all know where those are. Flexibility in the workforce has gone forward 10 or 20 years with the pandemic, right? As much as healthcare. And so I think as you're thinking about diversity, it's really important to, you know, know what your diversity numbers are, know what you want to hold accountability to, and then create a workforce that includes people, that has inclusion. I think that is incredibly important. You know, from there, there are lots of mentorship and sponsorship programs that help. But you know, I think those are the general rules. And then the other thing that, you know, as I think about kind of my commitment to diversity and my commitment, I also think, you know, take as many of those phone calls that you can. I mean, Amy Schulman took a call for me because I had a friend who said, hey, I think you guys would meet up. You have a lot in common. And I think it, it, she took the phone call. And um, I think people have to look at how they function individually, be that a woman in the workforce, a millennial in the workforce, a person of color in the workforce, take the time to take the calls and get to know people, get to know people who aren't like you and give people a, a lift up when they need it. I, I think that's a really important part of getting, getting to diversity. So you mentioned some of the changes in the, in the working models that have come as a result of the pandemic, more flexibility, but at the same time, I read a recent stat that said that I think three-fourths of women in business are considering changing jobs or, or even industries. 
And I think the, the stat for men was lower, but still quite high. So speaking to those individuals, what should they be looking for in new companies to understand whether they're going to be given the right opportunities to achieve their goals? I would say three things. The first is find a place where you can be you, right? Now, there are lines about how much of us we can bring to work. Everybody knows the appropriateness of those lines. But for the most part, when you go to work, you don't want to be being a different person because all the energy you spend being a different person, frankly, takes away from doing the work. So the first thing I would say is find a place where you feel comfortable being you. My second principle is believe what you see. So if, if you're somebody who is really, you know, I, I want to go to a place where everyone is represented and everyone is included, you know, if there is no diversity in the place, that probably should tell you something. And it probably tells you to look a little bit deeper. And then third, I would say, go someplace that gets you a little bit out of your comfort zone. So you want to be able to be you, but if you're going to take the time to start a new career or to build a new role, says the woman who worked at the same company for almost 26 years, if you're going to take the time to do it, make it worth doing, right? Like make it interesting for yourself. And that's one of the things that so excites me about this new work that I'm doing. Look, there are things I don't love about it every day. I'm like, oh, I miss such and such, but like, it's real. Like I'm really learning stuff. So that, that's the advice I'd give for people who are looking to change roles. Got it. And as we wrap up here, I think most of our listeners are, are MBA students and many of whom probably think 30 Madison is one of the coolest companies out there right now. So would love to hear if you guys have any hiring plans uh, that our listeners should know about. So let me just say to anyone who is out there listening, it is one of the coolest companies. So, so they probably got that piece, right? And um, yes, 30madison.com, go to our website. We have websites. We have lots of interesting new opportunities for engineers, for marketers, for healthcare specialists. And you know, we're going to be announcing pretty soon, maybe Tim, I'll come back on your podcast and announce some of the conditions that we're going to move into. And so a lot of growth, a lot of exciting things happening. And if you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself, which is always a nice thing to have in your job, you can't always have it. But when you can, uh, it's really nice to be a part of it. Give our, give our website a look and uh, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.